I love that. What's the story of Christmas? Oh, that's good. This might be a longer message than I thought. It is about the manger, and that is for sure, and we celebrate this amazing miracle of God taking on flesh, but as we have said earlier, the manger always stands in the shadow or the light of the cross. We've been looking at Philippians 2, and the point of this section is that we are to have the mind of Christ, and that mind is displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul describes Christ's mind in the verses that we've been looking through in Philippians 2 in light of the Advent season. What does Advent mean? The coming, the arrival. We, we anticipate and celebrate the coming or the Advent or the arrival of Christ. And in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2, Paul gives this great picture of the overall saga of salvation. What is involved in that? The advent or arrival of Christ is much more than just the birth scenario in a stable in Bethlehem. The advent or arrival is the all-encompassing saga of salvation, of which The birth narrative is a necessary part. This is the story of God Almighty taking on human flesh in order to die on a cross, in order to redeem us and save us from our sin. Now, if we are not sinful, if it is not a miraculous thing that saves us from sin, then this whole story is foolishness. And not much more than an excuse for a Hallmark movie saga. This is the Lord becoming Savior. Let's read again this passage in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, but we are concentrating on verses 5 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, I pray that you will open our minds and hearts today. So many of us have heard these words 
at least once a year since we were born. But I pray that these words will take root in our minds and hearts. Only your Holy Spirit can pry open our understanding in a way that is more than just hearing. It is life-changing. And so I pray we ask that for each of us here this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, that we pray. Amen. Our focus has been on verses 5 through 11 in this Advent season. It's the incredible story that forms the basis for the Philippians' faith and for ours. This is Christianity at its core. Eternal God took on flesh, died on our behalf, even death on a cross in order that we might have a relationship with him. We've been focusing on that for the last three weeks. I hope that has sunk in this season. Eternal God humbling himself. Eternal God humbling himself in order to die that we might have life in him. This is where eternity past, human history, and eternity future meet in one event. This is where God becomes Emmanuel, God, all-encompassing, distant, holy God, coming to dwell with us. God, Emmanuel, God with us. Last week we noted that the manger stands in the shadow and the light of the cross. The cross stands in the light of the empty tomb. The empty tomb stands in light of heaven and God's eternal glory. This morning, if you're used to a Christmas message, this one might seem a bit weird. If you're used to me, that might not be that weird. But it's actually the point of the story. The story doesn't begin and end in Bethlehem. It, it's much broader than that. It takes us to the conclusion, and it kind of hems us in, in a sense, that it makes us come to our own conclusion about the reality of who this Jesus was and is. It's not just a baby in a manger. Verse 9 begins, therefore. Our focus this morning is on verses 9 through 11, and verse 9 begins with the term, therefore. Let's try and think our way through the text this morning just a little bit, and then we're going to try and understand the conclusion. Therefore should catch our eye. What does therefore mean? Therefore, someone has said, when you see the word therefore in Scripture, you want to say, what's it therefore? It's a transition word. It's a roadmap word. It, it essentially says, because of what has come before, there is a conclusion that we should come to. So in this case, what is the therefore? Therefore. I think it refers to all that is said in verses 5 to 8. It's the mind of Christ which is demonstrated in the humility of Jesus. It's the demonstration of God's nature that Paul has in mind for here. It's not just the fact that Jesus humbled himself. 
It's the fact that Jesus, who is God, humbled himself. Jesus, who existed as God for all eternity, chose to humble himself and submit to the will of the Father all the way to the point of death. But not just death, death on a cross. Therefore, what happened because of all of that? Therefore, God exalted him. The word translated exalted is literally hyper-exalted. He, he exalted him to the highest degree. I don't believe that this means that Jesus was exalted higher than he had been before he came to earth. I mean, how much higher can God get exalted? Did the Father raise Jesus above where he was before? I don't think so. In fact, when you look at what Jesus said in John 17, verses 1 to 5, listen to this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. This is right before Jesus was crucified in his high priestly prayer. And he said, Father, the, the, hour, the hour has come. Listen to this. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, listen to this, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What's happening is in, in this highly exalting of God is that God is lifting Jesus back up to where he was before he came. Jesus was returning to his former glory. His humiliation, his humbleness... His humiliation made his glory unrecognizable. I, I think it, in some ways, a comparative term. He is exalted to the highest state in the same way that he was humiliated to the lowest state. When Jesus was on earth, his glory was set aside. It was veiled, as Jason German said. It wasn't visible in the same way that it was in heaven. In fact... His, its visibility was hyper-diminished in the same way that now it's hyper-exalted. His glory was demonstrated in the things he did, in the miracles he did on earth. You could see who he was, but it was diminished in its visibility. Isaiah gives us a hint of that when he predicts the coming Messiah, Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. I don't think Jesus was anything special on the looks department. He was despised, was rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their 
faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus' humanity veiled his glory and the suffering that Jesus went through veiled it even further. When we looked at Jesus in his humiliated state, is there anything that elicits worship? Pity, maybe. Repulsion. That's what Isaiah was talking about. People hid their faces from him. Many couldn't even look at him on the cross. And so we see the reactions, might I say the reasonable reactions, of those who viewed him on the cross. The religious leaders of the day mocked him and said about him on the cross, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and, and, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Even his closest followers, his disciples, deserted him. Now put yourself in their sandals. When Jesus was arrested, what did they do? They split. They ran. They hid. Big, brave Peter. <laughs> oh, aren't you with him? And it says he cursed to a little servant girl. Not only no, but no, Peter said. His closest followers were thinking, surely that wretched human form can't be God. This isn't the way this should end if this is God. And even God the Father, somehow, while he knew what was going on, had to turn away from his son. Think of that. I keep trying to wait, make that word abandon used by Mark and Luke say something different. But that's what it says. He was abandoned or forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your son, Jesus, descended to the lowest depths of humanity. And he went there from his former glory. And so God exalted him. This is my son who was done what I asked him to do, what no one else could accomplish, it is the only possible way for the solving of the sin issue of mankind. And when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he meant what he said. And God said, indeed, you have accomplished the task. 
The significant difference in the exaltation is not how high Christ went. The difference is what he took with him when he went. How is Jesus different when he goes back into the throne room of heaven? He has humanity with him. He has his human flesh. He has humanity. And now this very Jesus with his human being as well is exalted into the very throne room of God. That's why Hebrews says we have access to God the Father as humans. His glory has not diminished in any way. It's been added to. He's risen and exalted, not just Lord, but accomplished Savior, perfectly God and perfectly man. Which leads us to the second thing that happened that Paul says God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We need to be reminded here that in, in, in biblical terms, a name stands for the person. It, it it explains, and everything they are explains the name. <clears throat> His name is above every other name because he is above every other being. There is no one like him. The name Jesus wasn't that special, frankly. It wasn't that unusual. It was Yeshua in Hebrew or Joshua translated into English. It was as common maybe as the name John is for us. It's used Often today in other cultures, Jesus in Spanish is a very common name. But its meaning is unique in that it means God saves. So when others had it, it was a declaration. But when Jesus had it, it means this is the one by whom God saves. So how is it that the name Jesus is above every other name? It's because Jesus is exalted. Jesus, holy God, taken on human flesh, crucified on our behalf. This new, in a way, Jesus, this God-man is exalted above every other being. He is not just another religious leader. I had a conversation this week with somebody who said, well, you know, all religions are kind of the same. And I respect them all, and I love everybody in all those religions. That last statement is true, but all religions are not the same. Or what we just read is a lie. He is exalted above every other name because he is the only unique Savior and Lord. He's the one above all things. He has been, been given the name above all things. And now notice that the name is also the title. Jesus, human Christ, Savior, the Lord, Sovereign God. He's all of those things at once. And that is what is now contained in the name that is above every other name. And it is the person who has that name before whom every knee will bow and confess that he indeed is Jesus Christ, the Lord. It's another access or aspect of the exaltation and the giving of the name above all names that is significant. It's that the sacrifice for sin was accepted. Why did God exalt Jesus? Because indeed it was finished. When Jesus said on the cross, it was finished. That's true. 
the exaltation and the giving of the name that is above every name and the seating of this Savior at the right hand of God is God's testimony to the approval and the acceptance of the one forever perfect sacrifice. Peter closed in sermon in Acts 2 with this statement. Pentecost, he's talking about Jesus. He talks about who he is. He talks about what he's done. He talks about the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah. He includes the whole story, and he closes with this. Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him who? Who? Jesus. Both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucify. And at those words, it says, many were cut to the quick of their hearts. In Revelation 4 and 5, as we read about John's vision in heaven, he recounts what it's like to be around the throne of God in heaven and to see Jesus, what he's really like now. <coughs> and you remember what happened to John when he first saw him? <laughs> says it. He fell on his face as though dead. John, who most believe was Jesus' closest disciple and follower and friend here on earth, when he saw Jesus in his exalted state, went, <laughs> Why? Because this Jesus who hung on the cross, this Jesus who resurrected, is really a Jesus that we can hardly imagine. In Revelation 5, verses 9 to 12, the hosts in heaven around the throne of God sing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying in a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I suggest in verses 9 and 10 that the Lord declares the sacrifice effective. And verse 12 says that it's worthy of glory and praise and honor. So then we come in our passage to the purpose of all this. I think there are two purposes, and, and it follows in kind. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him. And now in verse 10, so that, 
we have another purpose. He's exalted him so that the purpose of Christ coming to earth was given to give his life for our redemption. But even that has a so that statement. As we have said, we tend to look at the saga of salvation from our perspective. From God's, there's a so that. What's God doing? What did it cost him? Why is he doing it? All of this journey from exaltation to humiliation from humiliation to exaltation is purposeful so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to make a couple of observations here. One, both of those things, exaltation, the bestowing on the name, have already happened by the time Paul wrote this. This is not a future event. This is a past event. Jesus already was Jesus Christ the Lord. That happened at his transfiguration. He was exalted. He was given the name above every name. He still is, and he always will be Jesus Christ the Lord. He was already seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That happened at his transfiguration. When he went up, he went to the throne room of God. He was exalted. He was given the name above every name. That is true now. He, is, he was Jesus Christ the Lord then. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And he always will be Jesus Christ the Lord. That is his identity for all eternity. Second observation is, I'm not sure that this is a forced recognition. I've read about a billion, no, I should, a billion times I've been told not to exaggerate. <laughs> but I've read a lot of commentaries and listened to a lot of messages on this. And guess what? There's a lot of disagreement. So I will correct them all and tell you what I think is happening here. I think what's happening here is a recognition of the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. I think the greatest display of God's glory is in the cross, but it's not just the cross. It's this whole saga of salvation that God from eternity past had a plan. God from eternity past knew he was the only one who could solve our sin problem. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. It's the glory that we were created to possess and to display. And when we lost that, God didn't come up with a plan, but he had a plan to reestablish that, that we might reflect his glory. It's this entire saga. And I think when we see what God has done, where every being, and there's disagreeing about every tongue, confess. Those in above the earth, those under the earth, those on the earth. Some will say, well, it's, it's people who died and went to heaven. Some will say the ones on the earth are people still alive. Those under the earth are the ones who are buried. Some will say that those above the earth, it's talking about the angels. Those on the earth are humans. Those under the earth are demons. You know what? I'm not sure. I think it's every tongue. <laughs> every tongue. 
Because when we see the glory of what God did, not just the glory of who he was in heaven, but the glory of what God has accomplished, that he took on human flesh. We're going to talk about this as the angels sing on Christmas Eve. No, the angels are singing on Christmas Eve. We're going to talk about what they sang, comma, this Christmas Eve. I want to make that clear. No false advertising here. I think when we get what God has done, that we, like John, go, oh. I think the angels looked at it and went, you got to be kidding me. I think the demons know their host. So I think the recognition is this. It's... It's one of two responses when we see this. Oh, my God, what have you done? Or it's, oh, my God, what have you done? You hear the difference? We see the exact same thing. But either way, we understand what he's done. And we glory in it. His sovereignty, his holiness, his justice, his wrath, his mercy, his grace, his absolute perfection in all of these things is demonstrated on the cross, but it's demonstrated through this whole saga of salvation. He is the one that thought of it. Only he could accomplish it, and in grace he paid for it, and he offers it to us. I think for every being in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the meaning of those three divisions can't be pressed, but I think every tongue, every mind recognizes the reality of what this God has done. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 gives us a clear picture about Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels, listen to this, as the name he has inherited is more excellent to theirs. He has been exalted and given the name that is above every name in heaven and on earth. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus, human. Christ the Savior. Lord, Almighty God. When Jesus was alive on earth, the demons recognized who he was and weren't very happy about him being around. It wasn't submission of their lives in worship. James says that even the demons believe in Jesus, but they still shake their fists at him. I think that what Paul is saying is that it, recognizing who Jesus is and what he has done is unavoidable, but that is not the same as submitting in worship. Acknowledging and admitting who he is and what he has done is different than submitting to who he is. And what he has done. 
But that's not the ultimate purpose. There's one more even higher. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess is so that, so that God the Father is glorified. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. What is salvation about? It's about God. We think it's about us. We think God, all did, God did all this about us. And so we're the center of the universe. We're the center of salvation. Not. It's to the glory of God. I, I mentioned it earlier, Romans 3.23. I skipped ahead. <laughs> For we all have sinned and fall short of the... This is about the glory of God, the redemption of mankind, him calling a people to himself. It's for his glory, not ours. We take no credit for it. It's no, it's no pat on our back. This is for the glory of God, the Father. It's his idea and his doing. There is no glory for us. There's only grace. We can't take any credit for it, and in reality, we get no recognition from it. Am I special because I'm a believer? No. I'm no different than anybody else. It is God who graced me with his Savior, and it is God who graced me by prying open my dull head. It's to his glory. So what? Let me give you two or three so what's. Is this true? The first so what is we got to answer that question. I, and I, I think sometimes, for those who have never heard it, you think, that's the bizarrest thing I ever heard. For those who have heard it a lot, you know what we think? Eh. Yeah, it's true. No, I mean, is this really true? If the God of the universe actually sent his son to take on human form, he died on a cross. He rose from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's declared to be Jesus Christ the Lord. If that's true, what's a proper response? I think it comes in two forms. One is accepting. When a gift is offered, you can either accept it or reject it. And if you reject it, you're kind of rejecting the giver, aren't you? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Accepting uh, involves a decision and a choice. Is it true? And by faith, we choose. We investigate. We decide. I'm not talking about blind faith here. We investigate. We decide. And then we choose. That's what faith is. It's a free gift for us, but it's an unbelievably costly one the purchaser. There really isn't much room for middle ground here. It, it, there isn't much room for saying, oh yeah, it's true, but 
It's true, but not that cool. It's a little like your kids or grandkids when you shop so hard to get the perfect gift and they play with the box. We sang it this morning when the kids were up there. I hope you didn't lose the words of the song. How many kings would do what this king did for us? Proper response is accepting and appropriating. As we began, or as we begin with a choice based on faith, so we begin to choose to live a life entirely based on faith of what Christ has done and who we are in him. It involves bowed knees, confessing lips, and submitted lives. Really hard to say, I want you to save me, but I really don't want to follow you. This salvation that Jesus accomplished means that those who have responded by faith have an entirely new life to be lived by faith. What a gift. We have access to the very power that raised Christ from the dead. Today, tomorrow, even Christmas Eve, we have access to the very mind of Christ all by faith. We either accept it or say, well, that's for somebody else, which results in worship. And I quote these two verses so often, I hope you have them memorized by now. Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, there's our word again. What's the therefore, therefore? What Paul did here in just a few verses, he did in 11 chapters in Romans, explaining what Christ has done. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I beseech you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. We define worship as coming to church, singing songs, maybe reading the Bible some. What is worship? Presenting our bodies as living sacrifice. Which he describes as, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We serve a risen Savior. Jesus Christ the Lord. Which leads us to the next therefore in Philippians. There's another one. Verse 12, which we will look at next week. Therefore, obey. Therefore, by faith, walk in Him. Work out your salvation is he who the Bible declares him to be is he who we hope him to be is there life in his name then a proper response is to accept the gift and respond and appropriate the life that he died to give us. Merry Christmas, 
indeed. Father, I pray that we get this. I, I, I just, my words can't do this. <laughs> my words can't explain this. I pray that as we meditate on what your word says, you'll pry over, pry open our heads and our hearts that we may revel in what you, God, have done. From before the beginning of time, Jesus humbled himself, took on flesh, died on a cross, took on our sin, the wrath of your, you, Father, was poured out on him, not because of what he had done, but because we had done. And then you raised him from the grave. You exalted him. Gave him the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow and tongue confess. And Father, I pray that we bow our knees and our tongues confess, not in the ways of, of just admitting who you are, but in submitting to who you are. That we make me come what you've made us to be. Thank you for this story. Thank you for this reality. Thank you. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name, we pray. Amen.